Good morning. I'm in a pretty wonderful mood this morning as I was back there getting ready to come up more so than more so now than any other time before. It's like I had that feeling that I was about to get into the game. I was back there, the same pregame nerves and jitters and just jumping around ready to go. I feel like I could run through one of these concrete walls right now. But I'm thankful, thankful to be here, thankful to Blake that I can text him the night before, the night before I'm supposed to preach and ask him, hey, can you swap out a song? Even though he asked me two or three days before that, do you have any songs that you want to hear or have performed? And I said, nah, whatever you want. But then as I was finishing up in preparation for my sermon, I just kept having this this same thought just go throughout my mind. That is Jesus, only Jesus. And so I texted Blake and I said, hey, can we get Jesus, only Jesus? Will that be a problem? And Blake said, cool, which was a shocker to me. I was expecting either a dad joke or a lecture, but I'm thankful that Blake responded with just cool. For those of you know, most of y'all know me, Actually, all of y'all, so I'm just going to introduce myself again. I'm Morgan, Morgan Putman. I'm one of the the leaders here at Vintage. And like I always say, most of the stuff I do behind the scenes is behind the scenes. But every so often, Bryce asks me to preach. And who am I to, to say no at the opportunity to preach? And so this week has been a a pretty big week. Uh, we had, if those of you who don't know, Bryce is a huge Tiger fan. I'm also a Tiger fan. That's my alma mater. And we had, a, we had college game day here this week for the first time ever. And Bryce was down there. People asked if I was going, and I was like, absolutely not. It's too early and too cold. But so... My mood is, is highly elevated. I think I'm finding myself becoming more and more emotional the way I, with the way I respond to things because as I was watching game day, they had a bit about Memphis and I started to tear up. And I was like, who are you? What is this? Why are you crying? And Bryce informed me this week when he asked me to preach that this might be one of my last times preaching here because... Most of you know I'm in the process of interviewing for a new job, and that job would require me to move to Tupelo, and Tupelo's like an hour and a half away, and I'm not willing to wake up and drive an hour and a half anywhere. But this is an exciting time and also kind of a bittersweet time because I love Vintage Church. I love most of you individually very much. And so I'm going to try to make it through my sermon. 
without having a Bryce voice moment where my voice randomly just starts to crack and get high-pitched. But for real, though, I'm thankful to be here. It's a wonderful opportunity to be able to preach the word before you. And so for the past few months, we've been in the book of Romans. And for most people who lean the way I do theologically, Romans is a, a favorite book of the Bible because of how dense and how, how much truth there is theologically and how Paul writes his letter out of love to the Romans and how he kind of lays out a like a theological framework that that many people love and hold to. But over the past few weeks, it may seem like this book is kind of a downer or depressing because we went from talking about God's wrath to talking about God's wrath to talking about his wrath a little bit more. And then from his wrath, we moved on to his judgment. And then here we are today, going to be talking about God's judgment again. And so while it isn't the case for the whole book of Romans, all of Romans isn't just God's judgment and God's wrath. For the first few chapters, it is pretty, pretty prevalent. But last week, Bryce preached from verses 5 through 10 on how we will be judged. And he compared the two people laid out in the verses. And he said the, the person who works for the right glory, honor, and immortality, and compared it to the person who is self-seeking and denies the truth in order to obey unrighteousness. And so this week we'll be continuing in the, the judgment of God idea by looking at how God's judgment is fair. And so this passage that I'm preaching this morning is just a little bit controversial, but it's not a major ordeal. There's not much to split over. It's just differences of opinion. But I still want to lay out both of those major arguments and then get to the text. So most people who read this passage, or some people who read this passage take it to be literal. And John Piper explained the the literal position for verse 13 this way. He says, so I believe verse 13 means not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the ones who will be acquitted at the last judgment will be those who, one, love God's law, and two, depend on his help to live according to the truth that they have, and three, trust God for his mercy when they stumble. And he lays out that when he's talking about being a, a doer of the lawless passages and talking about sinless perfection. But he says when Christ comes into a person's life by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith in the gospel, that person becomes a doer of the law. Not a sinlessly perfect lawkeeper, but one who loves the law of God or the law of Christ and depends on God's help to live according to the truth which now includes the cross of Christ and the works of the Spirit. It trusts God for his mercy when he stumbles. 
according to one John, uh, 1 John 1, 9. And then he says there are real examples of, uh, quote-unquote, doers of the law in Scripture. And he looks at verse or Luke chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. And he says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And then, so that's the, the literal approach to this passage in verse 13 in particular. And then there are others who take, a, take it as hypothetical or a theoretical doer of the law. I say that one could be justified if they hypothetically could be a doer of the law and keep the law. And they say that it means sinless perfection, which is impossible. And these pass- they use passages in Romans, like Romans 3, to say it's impossible to say all of sin and falling short of the glory of God and no one's righteous, no, not even one. And so me personally, I'll take the stance that Piper laid out and I'll be preaching it from that kind of perspective. But this passage is something that we need in a time like today and something that they need or needed back then as well. It's probably something that we will need in the future for generation after generation after generation. And so just a kind of backstory, the Jews were puffed up with pride and they looked down upon the Gentiles because they were they were the chosen people of God and the, the people that God gave the law to. They were the people who received God's law. And so it filled them up with pride when dealing with, with other people groups. And it kind of reminds me of the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in, in the book of Luke that I'll look at and explain later. But for lack of a better term, they were pretentious and uppity towards the Gentiles. And I believe that's why Paul would make the distinction that God shows no partiality in order to directly deal with the partiality that the the Jews were were showing. And so kind of the big picture that I want us to see regarding this passage is that God shows no partiality in his judgment. And I want to read the, the passage in question again today. Romans chapter 2, verse 11. For God shows no partiality. Interesting. Very, very plain right there. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Let us pray. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for 
your church. God, thank you for for your sacrifice that made your church possible. God, I pray that as I preach this morning that you would just use me as a vessel to just further communicate your word. God, I love you, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, this probably will be a pretty quick sermon. Probably get us out of here and go to lunch pretty quickly because I only have one point and two sub points. So, if you were counting down, you can probably go ahead and start your timer. Well, point one and our our main point that we're going to be in today is that God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. Look at verse 11. For God shows no partiality. So this thought of of God not showing partiality is a continuation of what was mentioned last week in the verses that our high pastor Bryce Holbrook preached. So look at verse 6 from last week. It says, He will render to each one according to his works. So it's basically saying we will be judged according to our works, the things that we do, the the way that we we conduct ourselves, the way that we act. That is how God will judge us. So with all of us being judged by our works, that means our backgrounds or history, excuse me, or whatever distinction you want to make and prop yourself up on, hold no weight because we'll be judged according to what we actually did. It's not like the, the faith of a praying parent or a praying grandparent can, can keep us. They can help us. They can guide us. They can be refreshing for us. But ultimately, you will be judged for what it is that you do. And so all of us will be judged according to the same standard, and that standard is Christ Jesus, as Paul later reveals in this passage. And so no distinction we make will matter when it comes to the judgment of Christ, because as the text clearly states, there is no partiality when it comes to God. And it's not just in his judgment. We see that as a, as a consistent thread all throughout Scripture— And so even though the context of all these passages aren't the same and they all aren't talking about judgment, there's a few I want us to look at today. James chapter 2 verse 1 says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. In Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 17, it says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great the Almighty and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribes. And in Acts 10, verse 34, says, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, 
but in every nation, everyone, anyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him. So if God, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, the only means by which we have salvation, shows no partiality, then who are we to create it and to judge by it? Who are we to treat people differently or wrongly or one rightly based on our own preferences? Who are we to show favoritism to people based on on theology, political leanings, race, uh, socioeconomic status, or whatever other distinction we treat people based on? So I would even venture to say when we create distinctions, and show partiality based on those distinctions, we are acting outside of the will of God and pursuing unholiness. Because that goes directly against what the Scripture says. As y'all know, one of my favorite sayings is, what do the Scripture say? Well, the Scripture do say, for God shows no partiality. And so if God shows no partiality, who in the world are we to think we can and so, I want to get into our first sub-point, which would be point A. It's talking about the Jews. And so, as y'all know, if you have any kind of knowledge of, of Scripture, you know that the Jews were the chosen people of God, the ones who received the law of God. If you've been around for more than a year or so, you will know that we just went through the book of Exodus where it talks about God carrying his people out and where he initially gave his law and carried his people into the freedom that they needed. And so so that kind of puffed the Jews up, as I mentioned earlier. There was a pride amongst the Jews for being the ones who received the law of God. And this arrogance that they had isn't anything new. We can see it in passages like Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, the passage I mentioned earlier, the Pharisee and the tax collector says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. (laughs) Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, will not even look or will not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So we see two people 
in the same place, basically in the same position. It's two people who need the law of God, who need Jesus in their life. So you see, one of them looks at the law and boasts about what it is that he does, and he boasts about the life that he has and looks down with content, contempt upon the other. But we see the one who humbly, the one who, who looked to Jesus, the one who knew his correct standing, his correct position, knew that he could not be righteous by himself. We see that that man went down to his house justified and not the one who puffs himself up. So I think it's important that we have to look at the law for what it, what it really is. It's a mirror to reveal to us our sin and our need for a Savior. The, the law of God should never pump you up with with pride or with arrogance. It should never create this narrative in your head that you are better than the next because when it all boils down to it, we're in the same position, and that's in need of Jesus. So the Jews are not automatically better because the law of God was passed down to them. I mean, we see later that there was an advantage that they had, but that advantage with the law of God was not, it was not that they were, were justified. Because look at what they did with the law of God. Biblical history is literally filled with them taking the law of God and going against it. And I mean literally, like actually literally, not figuratively, literally. The prophets and the, the things that they were going through, all the pain that they had to endure, that was because the Jews disobeyed the law of God. The Jews and all the problems that they were going through was because the Jews disobeyed the law of God. They knew it, and they knew it very well. But we all know that it doesn't matter how well you know something if you never apply it, if you never actually do it. Because what does the Scripture say? For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So we see, it's not enough to just hear and receive the law of God. You have to actually put into practice and actually do what it says in order for your life to be seen as justified. And I'm not saying we can work our way to salvation, and Paul isn't saying that either, because we know from other places in Scripture that our work is a proof of our faith, which is our basis of justification through Jesus. Piper explained it like this. There's nothing in Romans 2.13 that keeps us from believing in justification by faith alone. Faith is required by the law, and faith is the solo means of union with Christ whose righteousness vindicates us as the judgment. All the other obedience that comes from faith is a fruit of that union. So Romans 2.13 is not a contradiction of Paul's teaching of justification by faith alone. 
And we can even see other places in Scripture, a very familiar passage, a very known passage for, for those who are in Christ, one that I myself have even preached on. It's James 2, 18. It says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And so having knowledge of God and Scripture and spiritual things, even the deepest theology, means nothing if it's never put into practice. So if our theology starts and ends with the five points of Calvinism or, or the five solas or any other theological belief that we have, if it starts and ends with just belief, we're wrong. We're completely and utterly in the wrong. Because there's no way we can all or we can call ourselves followers of God if we only puff ourselves up with knowledge. Eventually, we got to get boots to the ground. We have to put our faith and our knowledge to work. We have to actually carry out the words and plans and teachings of God. And I'm a, a former athlete, but now I'm old and washed up. That's why I emphasize former. But we know, I know there's some other people in here, some people I've even played alongside who will probably chuckle when I say the term scout team All-American. An athlete who isn't good enough to actually be on the field in the game when it matters, but they know everything, the ins and outs, and they try to impress their teammates and coaches by ruining the walkthroughs or ruining practices. And so, like what a scout team All-American does is say you're a linebacker and you're just trying to work on a new play, run through a new play, and you are more so in the teaching mode, they come in and blow everything up and try to go, look at me, look at me. Because they know that that's their time to shine. Or imagine a doctor who never actually practices medicine. They only read the textbooks and articles and journals and, and everything that that doctors read and study, but they never actually do anything with the knowledge. They never actually put it in to practice. And so they never actually become confident or competent in what it is that they're doing. I was telling Bryce, it reminds me of an episode of Scrubs. It's one of the first episodes where, where the main character comes in, he's a, a resident his first day and something happens, there's a procedure that needs to be done in an emergency situation, and he has all these thoughts running through his head. He's like, all right, do this, do this, do this, but he never actually does anything. He just stands there, and he freezes. And then so a nurse that's been with the hospital for, for a while comes in, bumps him out the way, and actually does the procedure so that they can get on with the rest of everything. So if we're only puffing ourselves up with knowledge and never actually putting it to, to use or to practice, I would venture to say that we're just getting in the way. We're getting in the way of ourselves. We're getting in the way of God's glory. Or we're getting in the way 
of the work of God. So it's important to actually be a doer of the law of God and not just a hearer. So for the Jews, there's no excuse. For God shows no partiality. They had the the law of God. So there's no excuse. The law was given to them. They knew it. And they should have known how to move and how to to carry themselves. And now let's look at the the second group that was laid out here in this passage. And that's the Gentiles. That's the Gentiles. So some would make the argument that it isn't fair for the Gentiles to be judged in the same way as the Jews because they didn't have the law. And I would say that argument can be pretty easily debunked when we just look at, at the Scripture. So a few weeks back, Bryce preached Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and all unrighteousness, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. But this passage isn't directly speaking to the same thing So I'll address that argument within our immediate context. One commentator laid it out like this. There are three witnesses against the natural man. The law of nature, and by law of nature, I mean the law of human nature. You know, the general, like, moral code accepted by everybody. You don't have to be taught, don't kill, don't harm others, don't steal, you know, the, the general sense of, of care and compassion for humanity that everyone, regardless of race, creed, background, where you're from, regardless of any of that, there's that general law of nature. And then we see their own conscience. So our own conscience, it tells us what we ought to do, tells us the right thing we ought to do on a personal level. And then our memories. So even the things we remember, our past sins, our past teachings and whatnot, all of those things. So there's no excuse for the Jew nor for the Gentile. Another commentator said, those who do not have God's God's law still have an inner sense of right and wrong that condemns them when they violate it. Even unsaved Gentiles have an inner sense of right and wrong. Sometimes they do what they know to be right, but they often disobey what they know to be right so that their conscience condemns them. They will be guilty before God on the day when he judges their secret sins. So Paul is saying that the Gentiles instinctively knew the Mosaic law, the Old Testament But he's pointing out that even amongst themselves, they have their own law. 
They have a built-in sense of right and wrong that generally coincides with God's law. See, even at the most basic level, we have our own conscience laid out by Paul in verse 15, and we even violate that. So our conscience, inner thoughts, and our heart aren't the same as God's perfect law, and we can't even abide by those. So how often do we violate our own moral code? If we can't even abide by our own imperfect law, our own moral code, our own conscience, then how in the world do we think we're going to abide by God's perfect law? So one last thing as I wrap up is a quote from Stephen J. Cole. And no, not the rapper J. Cole. On judgment day, God will judge the secrets of everyone through Christ Jesus according to the gospel. God doesn't just look at our outward deeds. We can put on a pretty good show for others. We can impress them with our knowledge of the Bible, our prayers, our religiosity. But God knows every secret thought that we have and all the private sins that we do. He knows the prideful motives even when we outwardly serve him. He knows the lustful glances that no one else sees. He knows every click of the mouse on your computer, even late at night when no one's around. He sees the seething anger in your heart, even when you camouflage it. Nothing will escape his penetrating gaze on judgment day. There's no sin that we can commit in our hearts or outwardly that can, that can be hidden away from from the perfect judgment of God. So on judgment day, God will judge our actions and our secrets. He will judge everything according to the gospel of Christ Jesus. So there's no room for partiality of any kind in the church or in the teaching of God. As Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 and 29 say, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's, neither, there's no male or female. For you are all in one. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. So we're in the same boat. And that is in need of Jesus. And that's why I asked Blake to change the song. Because it's Jesus. Only Jesus the, the sinless, the perfect, spotless lamb that in our place took the lashings, the death, the one that faced the full wrath of God on the cross. That Jesus that rose from the grave three days later after he was dead. He wasn't just dead, he was dead, dead. He was gone for three days and then appeared before the people and told them to go and make disciples and teach what they have been when they have been taught and what they have witnessed. So your background, whether it's religious or not, matters none when it comes to the judgment of Christ. Your family history, whether they're Christians or not, matters none when it comes to the judgment of Christ. Whatever excuse you have for not coming to Christ matters none when it comes to the judgment of Christ. Because all of man 
All of man is judged by the same standard, and the only distinction that holds any weight on judgment day is son of God or son of Satan. Let's pray. God, thank you for your your sacrifice and made it possible for us to, to be justified. God, for your perfect obedience to the law of God that we cannot on our own fulfill. God, thank you for the love that you had for your people, that you would go so far to save them. And God, thank you that the only distinction that matters amongst us is child or not. God, I pray that we would not just be hearers of the law, but doers of the law as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.